love, love, love that song uh, because it reminds us once again of the, the power, the authority, the love, this, the awesomeness of our God, the God that we, we have given our lives to, that we've surrendered our hearts over to. He does love you. He wants to heal you. And uh, this song just reminds me of a few things, but I'll, I will throw that in the message a little later on, free of charge, okay? So if you have a Bible with you, uh, let's turn to 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, the uh, outline will come up on the screen for those of you who are viewing uh, out there in Cyberland. There's a statement that you've probably have heard many, many times. Uh, I don't remember who it originates from. But it's, it's a, it sounds inspiring. It says, we have nothing to fear but fear itself. We have nothing to fear but fear itself. Now, that, that sounds pretty inspiring, but too bad we just don't believe it. <laughs> uh, America right now is drowning in fear. We're, we're literally drowning in fear. You know, a fast-spreading virus, potential economic collapse, educational gaps caused by school closings, a possible second wave of the coronavirus they're predicting maybe in the fall, losing our jobs, not having enough personal protective equipment to go around. What if the, the government is opening up, you know, loosening um, our ability to go out back into public too soon? There's just all kinds of things that roll around in our heads because this is our this is our new normal, right? Everybody talks about the new normal. This is our new normal right now as we are struggling with and dealing with this coronavirus. And what news uh, do we trust and what don't we trust? And there's so much being put out there about the coronavirus. How, how can it be passed and how, you know, if you contract it, what's that mean for you? And so we have literally moved from the land of the free to the land of the fearful, of course, that is, was true, I think, um, before COVID-19 really hit. Uh, our country was already moving towards that, that this um, sense of anxiety and paranoia and neurosis. I mean, we, we do everything we can possibly in order to keep us from experiencing things. We have so many seatbelt laws and helmet laws, and disaster plans, and OSHA regulations, and just about, you know, general stress about when the other shoe's going to fall, and we in the USA are winning the fear department because fear is often deeply rooted in the unknown, and when you don't know something, you fear it, right? You fear what it's going to be like, what's the experience going to be like, for many of you, when you learned how to drive, there was a, an intense amount of fear getting in the car with somebody who's your uh, driving instructor, and they're testing you to see whether or not you're going to pass, because it's unknown. It's not something you've ever done before. And uh, as a result of that, God, all throughout the Word, He commands us over and over again, 365 times, fear not, fear not, fear not, fear not, fear not, because God has the whole world in His hands. He knows the unknown. He knows what's in the future. He knows what's in your future. He knows what's in my future. He knows what's in the future of this country. He knows what's in the future of this world. He literally holds the whole world in his hands. And regardless of what happens in the world around us, the Bible says in the book of Hebrews chapter 12 that God's kingdom remains unshakable. 
Things may be sh shaken up in the world, but God's kingdom remains unshakable. And since God's kingdom remains unshakable, the church of Jesus Christ is to remain strong and resilient in the face of fear. That's why God gives us the 365 fear knots. Yes, we are living in a time that is full of challenges and opportunities, yet God is fully functional in the lives of his people. His activity is still going on. God is still working in very powerful ways. God is still working in very dramatic ways. And that's why we want to kind of create the blessing board because we want to know what dramatic, powerful ways is God at work in your life. Now, I began this series, Living in Light of Eternity, for two primary reasons. First of all, it helps us to understand what God has planned for the future, what God has planned for this world in which we live. If fear is driven primarily by the unknown, God is not silent on this issue as to exactly how his will will unfold on planet Earth for now throughout eternity. He's given it to us in his word, and so we're looking at that timeline to see how it's all going to play out. But the second reason is because it alters the way that we see life and the way that we do life. If I'm living in light of eternity, if I'm living in the will of God as this plan of his is unfolding and being rolled out in the world in which I live, it helps me to see what truly is important and what is not. I would dare say that during this isolation period, you've probably discovered some things in your life that you thought were so essential and so important that you had so you know, stressed and worried about, and now all of a sudden now, you know what, this isn't really, this is really not that important. And now it's, you're looking at it from a different lens, through a different lens. You're looking at it from a different perspective, and so it helps us to establish priorities around that which is eternal rather than temporary. So our big idea for this whole series is that Jesus challenges us to live in a constant state of readiness for his return. What God wants to do is to take us on, on the highway of fear to move us from fear to faith because our relationship with God is a faith walk and faith results in freedom. I am free from fear. I am free from those things that create such anxiety and worry and stress in my life because I know that God holds the whole world in his hands. His will is being done. And since I, as a child of God, am in the hands of God, I know that he will guide my life along the pathway that he has chosen for me just as he will for you. So you just have to trust him. Does that mean that we're not going to ever have challenges in life, that we're never going to have to walk through valleys in life? Absolutely not. But we never do it alone. And that's why we don't fear, because our shepherd, the Lord Jesus Christ, has walked that pathway ahead of us. And so our, in our first message, we noted that the world is already in the throes of birth pains, contractions. A woman doesn't experience contractions at conception or during the time of her pregnancy unless there's something wrong, but she begins to experience contractions as the date of the birth of the, her baby is about to happen. And the closer that date becomes, those contractions start, they're far apart, they're mild at first, but the closer the time comes for the exit of that child out of her, her belly into this world, those contractions become much more severe, intense, and in greater frequency. And that's the world in which we are living in. What God is saying is this, no, regardless of our technology, regardless of all of our uh, 
you know, scientific advancements, in spite of all of our uh, great knowledge that we have about things, this earth, the things of this earth are going to grow continually worse, not better. Because there is a time that's coming, the next event on God's calendar called the rapture of the church. And Jesus said before that happens, before that event is given birth, that the birth pains, the contractions are going to intensify in, in pain and they're going to become more frequent. And we looked at the five areas in which that's going to happen and we can see that you know, so plainly in our world and in our day and time. So the next event is God's rapture. We talked about this last week, so we're going to hit a couple highlights and then move on to where I really want to talk about today. So let's go to 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, beginning in verse 1. Concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, speaking of the rapture, and our being gathered to him, we ask you, brothers, not to become easily unsettled or alarmed by some prophecy report or letter supposed to have come from us saying that the day of the Lord has already come. See, some of them in Thessalonica thought that, wow, we, we've already missed the coming of the Lord. Some of our folks have died. We don't know what's going to happen after death, and, and they're going to miss the rapture, and I, I, we think we have too. And he says, listen, people are telling you that. They may be saying that. Don't listen to them. It hasn't happened yet. Don't want, let anyone deceive you in any way, for that day will, will not come until the rebellion occurs and the man of lawlessness is revealed. The man doomed to destruction. Now you want to circle that. The man of lawlessness. Uh, this, the title of this message is the coming world ruler, and this is him. Spelled out here in 2 Thessalonians. He will oppose and will exalt himself over everything that is called God or is worshipped so that he sets himself up in God's temple proclaiming himself to be God. Don't you remember that when I was with you, I used to tell you these things? And now you know what is holding him back so that he may be revealed at the proper time. For the secret power of lawlessness is already at work, but the one who now holds it back will continue to do so until he is taken out of the way. And then the lawless one will be revealed, whom the Lord Jesus will overthrow with the breath of his mouth and destroy by the splendor of his coming. This is referred to in the second coming of Christ. The coming of the lawless one will be in accordance with the work of Satan, displayed in all kinds of counterfeit miracles, signs, and wonders, and in every sort of evil that deceives those who are perishing. They perish because they refuse to love the truth and so be saved. For this reason, God sends them a powerful delusion so that they will, be, we, they will believe a lie, and so that all will be condemned who have not believed the truth, but who have delighted in wickedness." And so, again, Paul writes about, in this first verse, about the rapture of the church. We looked at it extensively in his writing found in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 and verses 13 and 18. Just a reminder, the rapture of the church is the next event on God's divine calendar where Jesus comes from heaven and he says that he will bring with him those who have died in Christ and the bodies of the, the believing, uh, the dead saints in, in Christ, He's going to resurrect their bodies. They're coming back. They're already, their soul and spirits are already in heaven with Jesus. When he comes back for the raptures, their bodies are resurrected out of the grave. They're made new, resurrection bodies. 
reunited with their spirit and their soul, and thus they will end up in heaven with Jesus throughout all of eternity. So when we use the term death, oftentimes people think, well, when somebody dies, their life just ceases. There are those who believe that, you know, you're annihilated, you never knew you existed. There are those who say, well, you just go into a soul sleep and you're just kind of unconscious. And then there are those who say, well, no, you're into purgatory. This is not what the Bible teaches. The Bible says for the follower of Jesus Christ, the moment you die, to be absent from the body, your spirit and soul leaves the body. It never dies. It's eternal because it's been created in the image of God. God created you for not time but for eternity, therefore you are eternal, that the spirit soul moves directly into the presence of God, though you bury my body, and it's like it's asleep. It's like in a dormitory state until Jesus comes back and resurrects it. Now, when Jesus comes for the resurrection of those bodies, we who are alive, if you're alive during that time, if you're a follower of Jesus, you're immediately raptured, caught up, seized out of this world, physically into the presence of Jesus, and as you're making your way there, and the Bible says it's like that, um, your body is changed into its resurrected state of being. And so uh, the reason why this is important is because rather than fearing death, I don't have to fear death, I have hope in the face of death. I know, and I hope you know, that the day you draw your last breath, where you're going. Not everyone goes to heaven by virtue of the fact that you are a human being. The Bible says that the only way that we can enter into God's presence is through his son, Jesus Christ, to receive him to be your personal Lord and Savior of your life. At that moment in time, God cancels your, your debt of sin against he holds against you, and he clothes you in the righteousness of Jesus. And so you know that when you draw your last breath, absent from the body, present with the Lord. Now, if you're not a follower of Jesus Christ, you also, your soul is eternal, and your soul will vacate your body at the moment of death, but it goes into a place the Bible calls Hades, uh, or sometimes refers to it as hell, but it's not the ultimate resting place of hell. Uh, we'll get into that at, at another time. But needless to say, you'll, you'll be eternally separated from God. So as a follower of Jesus, man, you have all kinds of hope in the face of death. And secondly, rather than fearing your future, you have a secure future that is rooted and grounded in the character of God himself. That God has made these promises. He's fulfilled these promises by cutting a new covenant relationship with us through his son, Jesus Christ. And God never backs out of his covenants. And so it's not going to happen this time either. So when the rapture takes place, that sets into motion on planet Earth what's called the tribulation. The tribulation is a seven-year period of time in which this coming um, world ruler will rise up on the scene, and there will be some events that will transpire as a result of that. And so let's say the rapture has taken place, and so that sets off uh, the beginning of the tribulation. But you'll notice that um, Paul talks about a restrainer being removed. And so when the church is raptured out of the world, there is the removal of the restrainer. The removal of the restrainer. Who is the restrainer? Well, keep in mind, uh, we've talked about this many times before, that the world in which we live, there are two rival kingdoms that are warring against one another that plays itself out on planet Earth. There's the kingdom of God and the kingdom of Satan. The reason we know this is because in Colossians chapter 1 and verse 13 says that when you give your life to the Lord Jesus Christ, that he delivers you, he, he, he removes you out of the kingdom of darkness, the kingdom of Satan, 
and transfers you into the kingdom of his beloved son. And so these kingdoms, though they are spiritual and unseen, they play out themselves out very much in a visible, real way here on planet Earth. Now, Satan hates God, and he hates God's people. And he has a plan to rule the world through a coming ruler. Right? This, this person he's going to raise up to be a, a, like, like a dignitary kind of person, a ruler on planet Earth, so that he can gather all the world together and uh, begin overseeing them. And so really what Satan is doing is, is that he is assembling. He, he always imitates God. He's not original. He, he can't create anything on his own. He's a created being. So he, he uh, imitates God. And what he's trying to imitate ultimately in the tribulation is the Trinity. Satan, the Antichrist, the coming ruler, and then there's going to be what's called a false prophet who is going to establish a one-world religion. So this is what's going to transpire through this seven-year period of time. You have the Antichrist who's empowered by Satan himself. He rises up to world power, and um, then he raises up a false prophet who establishes a one-world religion because even Satan knows that we were designed to worship. Everybody worships, worships something or someone. And what better way to uh, solidify the power source of Satan himself than to bring everybody together in a religious fashion. Now, Satan is not able to reveal that world ruler until God gives him permission to do so. So you, you noted in verses 5 and 6, don't you remember that I used to tell you these things and now you, you know what is holding him back so that he may be revealed at the, what, the proper time? So God's the one who's setting that proper time. The first thing that has to happen is the church is raptured. For the secret power of the lawlessness, lawlessness is already at work, but the one who holds it back and continues to do so is taken out of the way. And so who is that? It is the Holy Spirit. In other words, it is the Holy Spirit of God who restrains evil in the world. Now there's a lot of evil in the world, and there are a lot of horrible things that happen. But watch this. Once, G once the Holy Spirit is removed out of the world uh, and the restraints are taken off and humanity is given over to their own self-destructive hearts, remember the heart is deceitful and wicked above all else, then, holds, then there's no holds bar. I mean, people will do whatever is right in their own eyes, kind of like in the book of Judges. Everybody was doing what was right in their own eyes, and it was a horrible period of time as humanity began uh, to unleash their own personal evil upon the world. Now, remember, where does the Holy Spirit dwell? In the hearts and the lives of his people. As a follower of Christ, you are indwelt by the Holy Spirit. Your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit. So what happens when the church is taken out of the world? The Spirit of God is taken out. Now, it doesn't mean because the Spirit is God, he's omnipresent, he's everywhere. It, it doesn't mean that he's not active here on the world. But we as the church, the salt and the light, we who pray and, and, and whom God uses to be the moral conscience of society is now removed out of the world. And so now there is no moral conscience in society, and people will just do whatever's right in their own eyes. And so you see how culture is changing radically over the last several years, and that will just, you know, continue to, to run on its own in an unprecedented rate of, of um, evil in, in people's hearts. And so this says something to us as the church. 
Now, the Holy Spirit is still going to be active on planet Earth during the tribulation. Here's why. Because some people are going to be saved during the tribulation. Um, and so he's the only one who can draw them into that relationship. But it's going to be more like the Old Testament Holy Spirit, where he just comes upon people, and not that he is his, his indwelling presence as we experience it in the here and now. Because he's just uh, he's taking off the restraints and letting humanity, you know, just giving them over to their own hearts. And you have this one world ruler who is going to be leading them. And you'll notice it says he is anti-Christ. He is the antichrist. Anti means against. He is a, against Christ. He, he, his whole um, mindset is uh, from Satan himself, which we can, the attitude that we can adopt in our lives, I don't need God. I don't want God running my life. I don't want God involved in my life. Uh, let me alone. Let me be in charge. And so the antichrist is anyone who denies Christ, denies his teaching, the word of God, and denies him as, as the son of God. And so... This is, says something to us as a church. Remember, church, we have the Holy Spirit in us. We're the temple of the Holy Spirit. What does the Bible say about prayer? The Bible says that when you and I pray as the body of Christ, that we literally unleash the resources of God from heaven to earth. Jesus taught us this in the Lord's Prayer. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. What unleashes those resources is the prayers of God's people. And so... Now that the church is taken out of the world, back into heaven, it's no longer a viable uh, entity to the degree that it was as we were being salt and light in the world in which we, we live. And so Satan is restrained in carrying out his evil plans until the church is removed, and then he begins to rise up and um, he begins to unfold his plan. It's really Satan's plan for planet Earth. Although he thinks Satan thinks it's his plan, it's really God's plan that's being rolled out. He's just using Satan to accomplish it. Now, one of the things that we know that midway through the tribulation, three and a half years in, uh, the Antichrist becomes even, you know, at first he's kind of a charmer, um, a great orator, uh, somebody who is very charismatic. Uh, but midway through, uh, his true colors are going to start coming out. In fact, the last three and a half years of the tribulation is so horrible and so horrific, it's called the, the Great Tribulation or the time of Jacob's trouble. Two-thirds of humanity on planet Earth will die in that three and a half year span of time. I'm telling you, you don't want to be here. So uh, I hope you've given your heart to the Lord Jesus Christ. So here's, once the restrainer's removed, then there's the revealing of this coming ruler. The revealing of this coming ruler. He's Satan's superstar who will rule during the tribulation, and he's known by several names or titles in the Bible. I'll just give you a few of them. In Revelation 13, he's called the beast. He comes out of the sea. He's called the man of lawlessness here in 2 Thessalonians. He's called the little horn, the wicked king, the coming prince, the great deceiver, the wicked shepherd. And the name that sums up his character, and you'll find this often in 1 John, John's writings, he's called the Antichrist. And so the deterioration of civilization we are seeing today will increase greatly after the church is raptured, and chaos begins to unleash itself. I mean, think about this. You've got, you know, approximately three billion people who've just vanished from planet Earth, and so this is going to send society in a tailspin and how they're going to try to, to recover from all of this and what is happening. And so here comes this world leader 
who is, um, who is longing for, for peace, right? He starts off by an individual who wants to bring peace and healing in the world that has just experienced this traumatic, chaotic event called the rapture of the church. And so that's the way he begins. Um, so I want to give you a few words that kind of characterize this individual, um, kind of give you a feel for who he is and, and, and what he's coming to do, because history has proven itself that people will surrender their rights if you can bring stability and peace into their lives during a time of chaos. So if this coming ruler can bring peace into the midst of chaos, people will willingly give up many of their rights in order to experience that. So here's the first word that describes him. He is called the peacemaker. So I want you to go to the book of Revelation. We're going to kind of bounce back and forth between Revelation and uh, 2 Thessalonians. So as the tribulation begins, um, there are a, a number of seal judgments uh, that take place that are followed by trumpet judgments, that are followed by bowl judgments. And the bowl judgments are the ones that are... That are um, used in the second half of the tribulation. Notice what it says, verse six, uh, chapter 6, verse 1. I watched as the Lamb opened the first of the seven seals. Then I heard one of the four living creatures say in a voice like thunder, Come. I looked, and there before me was a white horse. Its rider held a bow, and he was given a crown, and he rode out as a conqueror bent on conquest. And so this is a reference to the Antichrist and his kingdom, where he is going to be a ruler over a political system, and he comes out like this knight in shining armor. You'll notice that he is riding on a white horse. Again, here is Satan imitating what Jesus is going to do, because in Revelation chapter 20, at the second coming of Jesus, it says that Jesus is riding a white horse. And so he is going to step into the into the middle of humanity's chaos, and he's going to be a problem solver. He's going to be winsome. He's going to be powerful in word and deed. He's going to resolve the religious tension around the world, and he can speak all the different religious languages, whether quoting from Muhammad or Jesus or Hare Krishna or Buddha or whatever it is. And so he's going to bring the world together because the mantra of our age is being spiritual without being religious. Well, that's kind of what he's going to formulate in the world. And certainly he was a man uh, who will be on the scene before the rapture of the church. Now remember, Satan has no idea when the rapture of the church is going to take place. Jesus said he didn't even know what, what that day or hour was. That means Satan always has to have an antichrist in the wings, so when that event takes place, he can bring him out on the scene. Right? He hasn't got time to raise him up. He's already raised him up, and so there, are, you know, uh, there have been all kinds of guesses uh, about who the antichrist might be, and all throughout history, people have tried to juggle numbers and names and letters and try to figure that out. We don't know who it is. We just know that Satan always has him positioned to take up his role the moment the church is taken out of this world. And you'll notice the, 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 white, the rider on the white horse, the reason why I say he comes in a, and brings a time of peace, because you'll notice he carries a bow with no arrows. 
And so for a brief time, the first three and a half years of tribulation, he's going to establish peace around the world. Now, um, Daniel chapter 11 and verse 36 says that he will say unheard of things. That is, he's going to be gifted oratively with powerful words. Again, do you remember what people said about Jesus? We've never heard anybody talk like this. We've never seen anybody speak with such authority. And this is what the world's going to be saying about the Antichrist. In Daniel 9.27, it says that he's going to make a covenant with Israel. And he's going to establish this covenant, and the covenant is to protect Israel. He's going to somehow, in some way, he's going to solve the conflict in the Middle East between the Arabs and Israel that has been going on for thousands of years, all the way back to the time of Abraham, which is where it all began. Um, and so he, he brings this peace, he brings this treaty, and he says to Israel, I'm, I'm, going to, I'm going to establish a treaty with you, I'm going to protect you, and I'm going to allow you to rebuild your temple. Now the site on which the temple originally existed was where the, uh, there is a mosque there. There is a, a Muslim mosque. And so um, how, how is that going to work out? Because this conflict, well, he's going to bring peace. Somehow he brings this peace agreement, something that many presidents in the United States have tried to pull off, and none of them could, but this guy is going to be able to do it. Now think back about the temple. What did Jesus say when we began this series in Matthew chapter 24? When the disciples came out of that time of teaching and they looked back and saw the temple and Jesus says, I'm telling you, there's coming the time, not one stone is going to be laid upon the other. Well, that was fulfilled in A.D. 70 when the Roman um, general Titus destroyed Jerusalem, destroyed the temple, and the only part of the temple that remains today is what's called the Western Wall or the Wailing Wall where you'll see pictures of that or TV you know, uh, vision, uh, visuals of that where people go to the wall and they're constantly praying and they're writing out their praise and prayers and they put them in the cracks uh, between the stones and, and so they're wailing and asking God to reestablish and restore the temple. I've never been to the wailing wall. However, when I was in seminary, whenever it was time to receive your grades, they had what they called the wailing wall because that's where your grades were posted. It is amazing how many guys were like, oh, no, I can't believe it. So um, that's, my, that's the closest thing I've experienced to it. I just want you to see that the Antichrist will give the Jews what they're asking for, peace and safety, and they're going to be singing his praises. I mean, think about this. He settled the Middle East conflict. He's allowing them to stay in their land, to rebuild their temple, to reestablish their sacrificial system once again, and they're going to think he's the greatest guy that's ever lived. Here's the second word, is the word protector. Daniel 9, verses 24 through 27, you can go read those for your own, but again, I'm just reiterating that the Antichrist will make covenant with Israel to protect her and to permit her to build her temple, and he will temporarily solve the Middle East crisis, and the, the Jewish temple, remember the first one was built by Solomon that was destroyed by the Babylonians, and then Zerubbabel went back and began rebuilding it. It was partially destroyed again. King Herod, who was alive during the days of Jesus, uh, started rebuilding and expanding the temple. In fact, it had been under construction for 50 to 60 years at the time when Jesus says, hey, not one stone is going to be laying on top of this in the near future. But so he is their protector. But watch this. Here's number three. The third characteristic is that, well, let me just say this about the Antichrist. Don't you suppose that the Jewish people at that time are going to say, 
Could this be Messiah? Could it be Messiah? The long-awaited Messiah, because that's what they look for in Jesus, right? Someone who is going to overthrow Rome, you know, reestablish them as a nation, give them their land, protect them, and here, this is, this is all happening and unfolding. Here's the third word, is the word peace breaker. Peace breaker. Now, the reason why three and a half years into the tribulation, the Antichrist is going to, to um, renege on his covenant relationship with Israel to protect her and to permit her to do what it is she wants to do as far as the temple and sacrifices and all of those kinds of things. And so there is a war in heaven that takes place. And you'll note this in uh, Revelation chapter 12, verses 7 and 9. And there was a war in heaven. Michael and his angels fought against the dragon, and the dragon and his angels fought back. So what you have Michael, the archangel, who's fighting against Satan and his demonic beings, but he was not strong enough, and they lost their place in heaven. The great dragon was hurled down, that ancient serpent called the devil or Satan, who leads the whole world astray. He was hurled down to earth and his angels with him. Now watch this. In our day and time, Satan has the ability to roam not only across this earth, but in the heavenlies, just like God's angelic beings. We find in the book of Job, for example, he's standing there before the throne of God, accusing Job and, and challenging God about Job's life, and that we read in the scripture that he accuses the brethren day and night, and, and so he has that ability, but now all of a sudden, Satan, who kind of was on a leash, but kind of a long leash, now all of a sudden, he is confined to planet earth. This happens midway into the tribulation. And what makes the tribulation so bad is because now Satan is confined to the earth itself. And now he is confined and he is angry. He is furious. He is going to unleash a persecution like the world has never seen before. He hates God. He hates God's people. He hates anything about God. And therefore, now that God has confined him to the earth, Man, for the next three and a half years, it's going, to be, it's going to be bad for all of humanity. Now, that triggers what he does next, called the abomination of desolation. Jesus mentioned this in Matthew 24 and verse 15. It's mentioned in Daniel 9, 27. And so he comes and he sets up the abomination that causes des desolation. And what that means is simply this. The word abomination means something that is disgusting, something that is repulsive. And the scripture primarily means things, it's associated with things that have to deal with ungodliness or idolatry. And so Daniel chapter 9 and chapter 11 and chapter 12, all three of those chapters, talk about this event. Jesus talked about this event. Uh, this happened historically Already, back in 170 B.C., uh, there was a Syrian ruler named Antiochus Epiphanes, and he went to war against Egypt, and Egypt kind of pushed them, him back. And when he got pushed back and defeated, he went into Jerusalem. He was mad. He was furious. He was ticked off. And therefore, he went in, storming into the temple, and there he slayed a pig on the altar of God's temple. And if that weren't enough, he established an altar to Zeus, and he gave himself the name Antiochus Epiphanes. Antiochus means God manifests. 
He was declaring to the Jews, I am God. And when he printed his coins, he had the image of Zeus printed on the coins so that he could say to those around him, I am deity. I should be worshipped as such. And so at that point, he became the prototype of the Antichrist because he's going to do the exact same thing. And Jesus warned his listeners that when you see this happening, you better flee for the hills because you thought the tribulation was bad up to this point. It's nothing. It was child's play in comparison to what's going to happen for the next three and a half years. And so the Antichrist, he sets up an image of himself in the temple of God. The false prophet gives that image the ability to be alive. And so he begins demanding now that the world bow down and worship him. Listen, folks, this is always what Satan has wanted. From the time that he rebelled against God, you can read about it in Isaiah chapter 14, the five I wills. He was wanting the throne of God. He wanted to be worshiped as God. And now he's getting his wish and his way during the tribulation. And so the Antichrist will oppose everything that belongs to any other religion, true or false, as he organizes a world religion of his own and that will be required of all people to bow and to worship him, much like Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego back in the book of Daniel. Either bow down, you worship the statue, you worship me as God, or you'll die. And so this then, the next thing is the, re- the mark of the beast. In chapter 13, uh, many people have you know, heard about the mark of the beast. It says in verse um, 16, he says, He was given power to give breath into the image of the first beast, and so that it could speak and cause all who refused to worship the image to be killed. So this is what the false prophet does with the image of the the Antichrist that's in the temple. He also forced everyone, small and great, rich and poor, free and slave, to receive the mark on his right hand or on his forehead so that no one could buy or sell unless he had the mark, which is the name of the beast or the number of his name. And so this calls for wisdom. If anyone has insight, insight, let him calculate the number of the beast, for it is man's number, the number 666. Now, once again, everybody has speculated about what this mark of the beast is going to be like. For example, when Social Security cards first came out and you were given a number, oh my gosh, don't take a Social Security card because after all, it's the mark of the beast. Well, obviously it was not, okay? So the mark of the beast doesn't happen until halfway into the tribulation period. And if you're a follower of Jesus Christ, you're not going to be here anyways. So you really don't have to worry about it. For years, people have tried to you know, attach this mark to somebody like they did for years for John, with John F. Kennedy because he was alive after being presumed dead in World War II. And he, he had received 666 votes in the 1956 Democratic Presidential Convention. He was also shot in the head by an assassin, which is going to happen to the Antichrist. He's going to be wounded in the head and come back to life. I mean, people have jumped through all kinds of hurdles. So people say, Pastor, well, what do you think it is? What do you think it is? I have no idea. All I know is this. It could be some kind of computer chip. I'm not sure. But I do know this, that when you are asked to take it and you're confronted to take it, you are going to know what it is. You're not going to be like in the dark. They're not going to like sneak into your room at night and inject you with something because you're going to have to make the decision. Because if you do not receive this mark, you will not have the ability to buy and sell goods. And you are saying, in essence, 
I am not bowing down to the Antichrist. I will not worship him as God. And therefore, times are going to get really hard for you because the, the believers of Christ in the tribulation, especially the second half, almost all of them are martyred by beheading. Here's number four. He's a persecutor. Found in Revelation chapter 13 and, and verses 7 through 10. And we don't have time to read that, but it just says this, that in the great tribulation that that he is, is going to rise up and, uh, you know, he's going to require people to put their faith in him. And if they refuse to do that, again, he will, he will unleash an unprecedented uh, level of persecution throughout the latter half of the tribulation called the Great Tribulation. The fifth word that characterizes him is power, is power. We note back in Second Thessalonians in chapter 2 and verses 9 and 10, that he is empowered by none other than Satan himself. And so, uh, the, sh shockingly, he, he's assassinated. He's brought back to life. This is in, that's in Revelation 13, verses 3 and 4. Does that sound familiar, right? Satan is imitating God the Father and Jesus, whose job it was. Jesus came into the world to lead mankind back to worship of their God more than anything else. Again, Satan wanted to be worshiped as God, and uh, that was his original sin. And can you imagine if a world ruler who is loved and exhibited all these charismatic uh, characteristics at first, how, how they would love to talk about him and just were enamored by him, and now all of a sudden they are forced to bow down and to worship him, and if they refuse, there is severe persecution as a result. Now, let me just stop here and wrap this up. Because I, I know by now you're like, oh, why are you talking about this? We're not going to be here. Here's why. Because Satan, in the here and now, is at war with the church. He's at war with the church. And he will do everything in his power to nullify our effectiveness. And much of the characteristic you see in the Antichrist is the characteristic of Satan himself, who's warring against the church, because he understands the church carries the power of the Holy Spirit of God. The song that Carissa sang uh, before I stood up here, talking about there's healing in God's hands. There is healing in God's hands, and God has given us the honor and the privilege of prayer to unleash the healing power of God, the gospel of Jesus Christ that has the power to save and to heal and to deliver. And so we must resolve to get in this battle because God has given us one lifetime to live in light of eternity so that we can be used by God to, to unleash his resources from heaven down to planet earth. It's no accident that I think that the biggest box hits in our, in our, our country right now deal with the struggle and the battle, you know, earth against another another world. And so a superhero has to, be, has to rise up and, and save planet earth. Why? Because we, we want to feel like we live for something more than just the here and now. We want, to, we want to know that there's something more than just paying my cable bill and working my eight to five job and expanding or shrinking my waistline, whatever it might be for you. We need a, a narrative that is grander and that lives beyond ourselves. And so Hollywood is delivering us a fantasy world that, that there is a, but there's a real world that 
reflects a grander narrative. And we're in it. We're the church of Jesus Christ. And we're to be living in light of eternity, knowing that God is using us to bring the gospel to the world around us, starting it in our Jerusalem and our Judea and our Samaria and to the uttermost parts of the world. Listen, Satan is scheming against us. That's why Paul says in Ephesians chapter 6, we do not wrestle against flesh and blood. We, we do not wrestle against flesh and blood. We wrestle against principalities and power in the air. And then he said, here is the armor of God. Put it on and get in the battle. Every day we ought to be dressed for warfare. We have the helmet of salvation that deals with the mind. And so the Bible says that Satan is scheming against our minds and he's filling them with lies that he knows trips us up in life. So we are to take every thought captive in obedience to Christ so that we, are have, we have truth in our minds and we're thinking correctly and we are thinking rightly as we do battle with this, this demonic being who is very much hateful over us. And he's scheming against us. Paul said, I don't want you to be ignorant about his schemes and fall prey to them. And so God's given us this ability to armor ourselves. I mean, we have the helmet of salvation. There's the, the belt of truth and the breastplate of righteousness. We are righteous in Christ and we are secure in Jesus. And we shot our feet with the gospel of peace. And we pick up the sword of the spirit and, and the shield of faith. And we go into war against the enemy who is scheming against you and would love to take your marriage down. That's his scheme. That's a part of his plan. And there are things the evil one wants to take down on you in your life. Whatever that might be. It might be that, listen, he just wants you to spend all of your time focusing your life on the fact that you're bitter towards your parents because they didn't do this and they didn't do that and they didn't love me and I didn't experience that love. And so you can spend your entire life so embroiled and so embittered in what you did not receive in childhood that you are no longer... You have no capability of being effective in the kingdom because your mind is so rooted in the past. That's a scheme of the evil one that he leverages against God's people. Listen, God has called us to mount up, to get in the battle. He's scheming against our society and against Christians in so many ways. And here's the second one. And that is we must live in the radical middle. Right now, politics are dividing our country and our churches. There is a story in the Bible that relates to the current political climate. The leader of Israel at this point was named Joshua. And on the eve of a battle that Joshua was about to go into, an angel shows up, and Joshua asks the angel this question. Are you for us or our adversaries? And here's how the angel replied. Neither but as commander of the army of the Lord, I have now come. In other words, Joshua is asking the question that the most politically engaged Americans ask, hey, are you with us? You Republican? Are you Democrat? Like if you're not a Republican because you're a Republican, then the Democrats are all idiots. And if you're not Democrat like I'm a Democrat, then all the Republicans are idiots. And so now there is this war that is happening inside America that has been brought into the church as even fellow believers war on Facebook and war in Sunday school classes because one's on one side and one's on the other. How can you be a good Christian and be 
Democrat? How could you be a good Christian and be Republican? And how, how can you be at the, on the side of the idiots? Can't you see the truth for what it is? And so there's this war. Who do you think is stirring that up? If Satan can keep the body of Christ disunified, he wins. Let me remind you that it was God who told Joshua to go into the battle. He probably hoped the angel would say something like, well, of course, Joshua, I'm for you. I'm on your side. No, he says, I'm not on either side. I'm on God's side. That's the radical middle. People try to press me all the time on political issues. I do have political opinions about certain things. But that's not my message. My message is the gospel of Jesus Christ. That is the message of the church. That is the message God gave to us because it is the power of God unto salvation. It is not to formulate political rivalries. Even Jesus himself lived under the political control of Rome, the most powerful nation in his time. It was the most corrupt, brutal, and immoral culture that has ever existed. Absolute power was put into the hands of one person, Caesar. And any believer, every follower of Jesus Christ would, would, would take the living conditions of leadership of any American president over that of Roman Caesar, I, I can assure you. But here's what Jesus did not do. Jesus did not rail against the government. He didn't picket against the government. He didn't even talk. The only time he ever mentioned Caesar was when he was asked the question, hey, who are, we, are we just supposed to pay taxes? Well, whose image is on that coin? Well, it's Caesar. Well, then render unto Caesar what's Caesar, and unto God what is God's. What Jesus was focused on is what we are to be focused on, and that is the gospel. As soon as you align yourself with a particular political party, you are automatically hated and your sanity is questioned by the other side. I'm just saying to you followers of Jesus, if we just keep getting out here on Facebook and if they don't see it my way, they're idiots. Listen, these are the people we've been called to reach with the gospel of Christ. If you're making them your enemy right up front, right out of the gate, you're not going to have much leverage and influence in their life. I'm not saying that you should not be involved in politics. I'm not saying certainly that you should not vote. You ought to vote. I'm not saying that Christians should not be run for political office. I'm not saying that at all. It is something that we are to be engaged in. I'm just simply saying let's stop making a war out of it. We're fighting the wrong battle. The battle is for the unsaved, those outside the realm of God's kingdom. And Jesus has called us to rise up and to be in the battle for 2020 and beyond. If you think that a political party is going to change this world, you are grossly mistaken. It is the gospel of Jesus Christ that has the power to change the human heart that results in the change of humanity itself. So let's bow our heads together. Father, we thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you for the Lord Jesus and God, I just want to pray right now this morning for anyone who's out there listening who has no firm relationship with Jesus, who have never embraced him to be Savior and Lord of their life, to experience the radical heart change that Christ can bring. Lord, I pray your Holy Spirit right now, this moment, this day, this place, out over the airways, 
will start drawing their hearts into relationship with Jesus Christ. Father, we thank you that you offer this as a free gift, and I pray that right now they will receive Jesus as a free gift that you're offering to them as they put their hope and their faith and trust in him alone for the forgiveness of their sins and for their eternal hope of spending life with you after they leave this world. That whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord, you said, shall be saved. And Father, I pray for their salvation this morning. That in the best of their ability, they'll just offer up a prayer to you, asking you to forgive them and surrendering their hearts and their lives over to you through your son, Jesus Christ. That they too might feel the hope in the face of death and security in the face of a unknown future. May that all get reversed. May they have a secure hope that when their soul leaves this body, they will be in your presence and that we no longer have to fear the future because the future is in your hands. It is all unfolding in your timetable according to your purposes. And Father, so that's where we put our hope and trust. Father, I pray for the church of Jesus Christ. Not just this church, but our churches all across the world. That we would suit up get in the battle. And much of that battle is won on our knees. I pray, God, that during this time of isolation, if nothing else, you drive us to our knees. You drive us to putting our, planting our faces in the ground and crying out to you as we have never cried out to you before. We are in a battle. We are in a war. We are watching our culture around us disintegrate. And by all external purposes, it just seems like we're losing the war. But God, we know, we know that you're involved and engaged in the hearts and lives of the very people you created. The very ones that you love. So I pray, oh God, in the church of Jesus Christ, we will put down our weapons of politics. And pull up the mantle the gospel of Jesus Christ because we believe, Father, as you have taught us that it is the power of God and the salvation to save, to heal, and to deliver. And I pray, Father, that we will become a healing church, that we might offer that hope to those who are in search for healing in the depths of their soul. God, there's so much brokenness so much hurt, so much pain. And we know that when we bring Jesus into the middle of it, he has the power to heal. May that be the driving force of our lives as we live in light of eternity.